making me whole in us. Father, in love, speak to us through your word, and in love, enable us to respond in love and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I could not but help notice it's a good day for Oak Hill today at the front here. All a selection of Oak Hill people, a present vicar, an ex-vicar and two new candidates. Oak Hill is in good form. I commend it to you. I, I've been told on good authority today is Father's Day. It's an event that doesn't sort of happen at our house, but I'm told it, it, that's what it is, Father's Day. It's a purely an American invention. You all knew that, didn't you? It's like Mother's Day. That's another American invention. But we had a thing called Mothering Sunday, as you well know, which is a good ecclesiastical tradition in uh, mid-Lent. Uh, and the whole point of Mothering Sunday is that it was originally nothing at all to do with mother mothers, sorry mothers, it was to do with mother church, that's what Mothering Sunday was all about. And I'm going to try to lift Father's Day out of uh, what it's become. Our family never kept Father's Day until my son got married and his wife has a much more tender nature and so I, we got a card from my son and daughter-in-law with a little PS at the bottom from my son, sorry dad. But never mind. There you are. But I think the Apostle Paul was acting as a good father when he wrote the words, the complicated words that we've read. It's a complex passage. It gets all tied up. And because uh, Paul is feeling very deeply, when you look at verse 8, uh, page 1162, by the way, back where you are in this particular passage, uh, in, when you get to verse 8, it becomes really very complicated, both in the original and in the English. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, but only for a little while, yet now I'm happy. It's all very complicated, but it's Paul, in great emotion, pouring out his fatherly love. And you probably know that in 1 Corinthians he says quite clearly, I'm your only father, you've had many tutors, but only one father. Now, please, I'm not suggesting that my long contact with Fullwood gives me a kind of fatherly spirit towards you. And should anybody call me Father Hacking going out, I should be quite cross. Uh, but it, it won't happen. Um, but it, I want to enter into Paul's fatherly heart and to see why this passage matters. Now, just a little bit of homework, first of all. I actually have written a little book on these chapters, 2 Corinthians 2 to 7, if one is not allowed to point out, if it's not out of print. I only wrote it two years ago, so it shouldn't be out of print yet, but you never know with these things, called The Rhythm of the Gospel. And it was all to do with this strange parenthesis, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 4. And it's like a strange insertion. Just glance back a few pages to chapter 2 and verse 13. It's important to do this homework first. I said goodbye to them, my friends, and went on to Macedonia. Okay, jump on to chapter 7, verse 5. When we came into Macedonia, he's taken a long time to get there, five chapters. And it's almost as if uh, in chapter 2, he gets so excited about the good news that Titus brought back that he goes off on this inspired parenthesis. Some commentators think that it was uh, already written and he just inserted it here because it fitted. I doubt that. I think he's so excited that he gives a long excursus on mission and ministry. And I've always found these chapters to be tremendously challenging. There's a very interesting personal uh, reference here. When I was going to be ordained just over 50 years ago, uh, a friend of mine knew I was going to go on retreat. 
and he knew how much I hated retreats. He knew I was going to be silent for two days. I find silence for, 20, you know, for 10 minutes difficult, but two days was even worse. So he suggested that I might uh, read these chapters of 2 Corinthians, all about mission and ministry. And I'm so glad I was given that advice. They've stimulated me ever since. Now, why is it that having got excited, he, he suddenly stops his excursus, his parenthesis? Well, I think there you see in uh, chapter 7 and verse 4, the trigger word is encouraged. He suddenly remembers how encouraged he was, and so he comes back from the dizzy heights of his mission and ministry to talk very practically and very personally about his encouragement. Will you please note that word encouraged is the word for comforter, the word for the spirit. We're still in Sundays after Pentecost and we're rejoicing at the coming of the spirit. And this is a word about the comforter. Indeed, it comes twice again in our passage in verse 13. Twice we are encouraged, our own encouragement. You get the message. Now, what are the signs of an encouraging church? What was it that, that got Paul so encouraged by what had happened in the church at Corinth, brought to him by Titus, that had given him such a great uplift? Well, I wonder what you think are the, uh, are the encouraging things in a church. Just while you're pondering it, notice there's a reference here in verse 8 to a letter that Paul had written. And he was bothered about how they would have responded to that letter. Now, you may think the letter was 1 Corinthians, but you would be wrong. Whatever letter it was, it's, we've lost it. So, should anybody manage to find what's normally called by commentators the severe letter, you'll get a PhD with double honours and you'll be marvellous. you a change of the Da Vinci Code and the Gospel of Judas. Here's a little exciting thing. We've never found it. But somehow, he sent a letter that bothered him. A letter that said some pretty straight things, because he was a father. He knew how to behave dadly. He knew how to be father in discipline and father in love. And he was worried how they would have responded. And to him, the signs of an encouraging church was my title tonight. Godly sorrow. Now, if you were writing down what you think are the encouraging signs of Christ Church Fullwood or whatever church you may normally belong to, what would you look to? Size of congregation? Size of collection, lively worship, friendly fellowship. Well, they're all important, and I would want them all to be in any church that I was involved in. Would you put godly sorrow high on the list? A church which repents, would you have thought that was the mark? Yesterday, I, I had several hours to myself. My dear wife was singing with a celebration choir where the far parts of the empire at Louth and so she was a long way away and I had about nine hours she's now getting her own back I've spent all her life uh, staying at home while I was away preaching now she's getting her own back going out singing so I had plenty of time and I had there a tape donated to me of a sermon preached in the Keswick Convention in 1957 by a preacher in his day a powerful preacher called Alan Redpath whom I got to know and long since dead his sermon in 1957, which I listened to almost fearfully, was powerful and passionate. You don't hear sermons like that anymore, not at the Keswick Convention. The passion 
preaching on the words of David to, to uh, uh, of Nathan to David you are the man the old AV version thou art the man and I, I, as I listened to it as a preacher I thought could I preach like that today what I think I got, got hold of me I wonder whether it's in, in having a different way of preaching a different style we like our bits of humour there wasn't a trace of humour in that sermon we've lost in the process the passion and it may well be that in the process churches don't have godly sorrow it's not the kind of thing you want to talk about it isn't the note you want to hear but it's the note that Paul wanted to hear and refreshed his spirit so there are signs of repentance in that church and those signs of repentance brought a source of refreshment to Titus we'll see that word in a minute and a secret of rejoicing to the heart of Paul and we'll lead into communion we haven't had a confession yet but at the end of the sermon I hope we'll lead to real confession signs of repentance you see we tend to think of repentance as what you do before you become a Christian repent and believe the first message John the Baptist preached the first message Jesus preached the first message Peter preached and Paul repent and believe but this is not about that this is about repentance by Christians repentance over an issue the church had to deal with in Corinth that's the repentance he was thinking about pardon my reference to the Catholic Convention but you know it's sort of dear to my heart and so I was a bit there again fairly soon uh, in the old days we've changed now we had a kind of sequence of teaching at Keswick and always on Monday it was sin in the life of a believer the argument was that you couldn't really get to grips with the teaching of the Holy Spirit until first you'd heard about repentance and there was a, a lot of sense in it but it became rather legalistic and uh, in my days as chairman we tended to drift a little bit away from that sort of strict guideline but I can remember I used to sort of allocate when I was chairman who would speak on what night and I can remember one rather uh, dignified uh, long-standing member of the Keswick platform uh, dropping the line complaining I always chose him to preach on Monday he said I'm getting known as the sin man he said which is you know, if you feel it sorry for it I always have to preach about sin but you see and it was, a, it was on the Monday night that that tape that I heard yesterday was being preached by Alan Redfath in 1957. But it is right that the church should listen to the need for repentance because there's sin in the life of the church and the believer. So what is the need for this true repentance? The intriguing thing is, as you search these verses, the answer is you don't know. It probably had something to do with Paul's authority. These chapters have a lot to do about with the super apostles who thought they got everything right and Paul who preached a message that was too demanding. Uh, and it may have been that. More likely it was to do with some moral failure because he refers to that later on in verse 12 about the injured party, the one who did the wrong. But isn't it interesting? We don't know. All we know is that Paul had been straight in bringing to light this particular sin in the life of the church and it's part of the spirit's inspiration that we don't know take for example the Philippian letter there are two ladies Euodia and Syntyche who had caused trouble and they've been remembered ever since poor ladies they're known as the two ladies who caused trouble what did they do we haven't a clue so that you can in fact 
mirror whatever's happening in the life of any church where there is sin that needs to be repented of. What Paul was concerned about was that repentance should be seen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had spoken about some particular moral sin, uh, a sin almost certainly of incest in the life of the church. And Paul said, it's not just because of that terrible sin that I'm speaking, I'm speaking because the church doesn't seem to worry. Not just that the sin has happened, but the church is glossing over, almost proud of it. And if you heard the tape of Alan Breadpath in 1957, I wonder what he'd say if he was preaching in 2006 where we take sins, not least sexual sins, so lightly in the life of the church. He certainly would have preached with passion. So here is Paul wanting to say there is a need for repentance. What I'm looking for, and of course he found it, was that the church would repent, would show sorrow, the need for true repentance. Let me just say, in that tape of Alan Redpath from Thou Art the Man, he did point out the wonder of the fact that however strong the language of condemnation, there is a great offer of grace and the wonderful triumph and out of that event came Psalm 51, possibly Psalm 32 that we've just read that reminder of the happiness when you know what it is to be forgiven the need of true repentance and the nature of true repentance see that's seen in verses 9 and 10 you did become sorrowful and I'm glad you did because it was godly sorrow that brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. If we'd read on, that, that's, well, in, indeed in Psalm 32, the bit we read, it talks about how awful it was until he found the forgiveness. How he wrestled, how he could find no peace. That ought to be true when we are aware of sin and it should lead to genuine repentance. But what is the difference between the godly sorrow that leads to repentance and what he calls in verse 10 worldly sorrow that brings death we well, see godly sorrow verse 11 leads to all sorts of things earnestness eagerness indignation alarm you get the message don't you they really were stirred up what is worldly sorrow in my very early days of ministry i remember visiting a gentleman Perhaps that's a too kind a word for a man whose behavior was terrible. And uh, I was given the job by a vicar who always reckoned it was your job. It was on your patch, you did it, however young you may be. So I had to go and talk to this gentleman and try to make him see the error of his ways. And he would always, when I'd said a word or two, he would weep and tell me it'll be different. Within another week, it was all the same again. Tears really didn't mean it at all. Uh, emotion doesn't necessarily mean anything. Take three examples in the scripture of worldly sorrow that led to death or didn't lead to life. One led to death, Judas. Judas is this supreme example. Judas having betrayed Jesus, having sold Jesus, had this awful repentance of sort, had this awful sense of things were wrong, but it wasn't godly repentance. You don't commit suicide after godly repentance. He took his life. He didn't come back to Jesus with terms of great sorrow. He just ended it all. No hope here. Just suicide. 
Or do you remember the story of, in Genesis 4, the first murder in Scripture? Cain. When Cain was told by God that he, he, he must do something about this spirit within him, he took no notice, so eventually he murders his brother. And when his brother is murdered, Cain is more worried about what's going to happen to him. My punishment's greater than I can bear. Don't we sometimes worry today that we care more about the criminal than we do the victim? Well, that was the day of Cain. He was sorry for himself. It wasn't fair. That wasn't godly sorrow. Or rather more prosaically, what about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? What kind of sorrow was that when they learnt that they were no longer walking with God? Adam blamed his wife. His wife blamed the serpent. They just passed the buck. Not my fault. How easily the kind of wrong kind of sorrow wants to... Is, we're so focusing on ourselves, we're sorry for ourselves, or we try to pass the buck. We explain it away. It wasn't my fault. And the challenge is that uh, a church which knows godly sorrow will lead to repentance, will lead to life, and the church will get, get a better place. If you read the letter to the seven churches in the book of the Revelation... Martin and I have just been to Samos on Thursday. I'm giving some Bible readings at Ireland called Samos. It'll be hot, and you know how I hate hot weather, so do pray. But as I read through, uh, Paul called in, called in Samos very briefly. But all those letters around that area, Sardis and so on, how often when he talks to the church, the risen Lord asks for repentance. Repent. Or else, repent. And when there is sin in the life of any church, when there is sin in our, our lives, there needs first of all to be a genuine repentance that will lead to sorrow, that will lead to confession, that will lead to life. And we shall look back and thank God for his grace. Signs of repentance. Now those signs of repentance lead on to what I call a source of refreshment, verses 13 to 16. Here is the word, the word refreshment is used, that the spirit of uh, Titus was refreshed. He'd been sent as a visitor to find out what was happening, and he was refreshed. There in verse 13, uh, his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Now, that's of trivia, when I'm sometimes asked, having been preached a long time, what difference do I see in churches these days? When I used to preach in the old days, ladies covered their heads in church. Nowadays, it's lads who cover their heads in church with, bas with, with, with baseball caps. I've done what I've done tonight. I've often wondered about whether people sleep in their baseball caps. But the other thing I've noticed it, it, of, of, of today's is... The great drama, I'm sure it wouldn't happen in full, but in the middle of a sermon, a number of people suddenly decide to have a swig of water, the ubiquitous bottle of water. I'm never quite sure it's my sermon that's produced a deep spirit of repentance. Out comes the bottle, and we refresh our souls. You dead. Oh, there's one there. I see that. But the music group are allowed one, because they do all sorts of strange things. But refreshment of spirit is what Paul's talking about. And Titus comes... He comes to Corinth, never having been there before, and it says he was refreshed in his spirit. He went in faith, and he returned in joy. Lovely, isn't it? It says about him in verse 13, he was so happy, his spirit had been refreshed. And what did all that mean? He'd seen God at work. May I suggest to you that what he saw was what we need to see in the life of the church. Here's a visitor, here's a Titus, 
coming to a place he'd never been before, and he found a church which had responded to this severe letter in real depth, and it refreshed his spirit when he realised what had happened. I hope it's always true that anybody coming into this church, which you know means a lot to me, finds their spirit refreshed, not just because of what we do in our services, but because of what they see in the lives of those of us who belong to this church. That there's that lovely balance of truth and love. Do you remember the, uh, you've read many of you, What's So Amazing About Grace by Yancey, which I like 90%. There's 10% of it I'm not sure about, because I think it comes from the sort of Southern Baptist American scene, which is not always our scene. And while it's true over there, there's too much legalism, it may be over here, often too much the opposite. Often too much, does it really matter? And there's that chapter, a very moving chapter, where Yancey writes about the prostitute who was going through real searching of heart and somebody suggested she might go to a church. Go to a church? That would make it worse. To go, I'm bad enough that I go to church to make me feel worse. Which is exactly what people think church will do to them. That is to say that if I come with all this sense of need and failure in my life, all I will find is condemnation. If that were true, then we're no church of Jesus Christ. We have no right to be around the foot of the cross. On the other hand, on the other hand, it, we would not be the family of God if we treated sin lightly. It is ever the mark of a church, examine your own soul, that it will take sin seriously, whatever it is, sexual sin, greed sin, gossip sin, whatever. Take it seriously. Face it head on. But at the same time, act in love and grace and mercy he went in faith he returned in joy his spirit was refreshed and then finally there's a, a secret of rejoicing go back to the first few verses now verses 5 to 9 I've done it inside out but it's because of what happened the church repented Titus saw it he comes back to Paul and Paul's spirit was refreshed and you get this sort of sowing in tears and reaping in joy coming out look at verse 5 when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed on every side, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Remember the old verse of, O Lamb of God, I come just as I am, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. That's where it comes from. Here is Paul, desperately anxious. I never understand people who want to tell me that Paul was hard. You really haven't read scripture if you think that. Never was it a man who, who wore his heart on his sleeve. You've seen it in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 and 13. I, I'm, I'm opening my heart to you. He always was. He was very vulnerable. And he was so upset. If we read on to chapter 11, you'll get a long list of all the things Paul went through. And the climaxes above all. The care of all the churches. Who is hurt and I'm not hurt. That's what hurt. I've been a pastor for a long time and I know something of it. But for Paul, how much it hurt. And 
He was waiting desperately in this situation. If I may, without being in any way touching on personal issues. The tragedy of church life today where we think the only way we can survive is by pretending sin is not sin. Brush it under the carpet. Let's escape. I hope you're praying what's happening in America just now. The great general convention. The Episcopal Church of America has been asked not to repent of having a practicing homosexual bishop in position. Not, not, they haven't even been asked to repent. All they've been asked to do is to say they're sorry. It's upset the rest of us. Is that all you do when faced with a thing condemned in Scripture? We don't condemn it as wrong. We're just sorry you were upset about it. And until that kind of thing is dealt with, you can't expect God to bless. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, and repentance leads to a change. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And yet, just look at the but God in verse 6. We felt like that. We'd sowed in tears, but God. He comforted us by the coming of Titus and the comfort that came to give him great joy. And there was joy in the heart of Paul over sinners repenting. I remember going down from my minister here for a weekend down in a part of London that was then a very tough part of London. It's now become rather more sort of... Uh, it's changed its status. And, uh, but in the days when I went down, it was a tough part of London. And... Uh, the vicar there was an old friend of mine and he said he was a little apologetic it was a small congregation you come from a big congregation he said at least we down here know what it's like for sharing the joy of heaven over one sinner who repents I had to point out to him even in a biggish congregation we still repent one by one and there is in the, in the presence of God that joy over one sinner who repents, not just coming to faith in Christ for the first time, but coming back in penitence because we've let him down. Now, I would not be true to Scripture, and I've been challenged by that tape of my old friend Alan Redpath, and I would not be true to this passage or to the communion service if I did not point out to you as I finish that the spirit in which we come to the Lord's table should be one of penitence. It's not without significance. We, I go a lot to free churches and when they have a communion service they don't have the kind of liturgy that we have. And almost always they read from 1 Corinthians 11 where it's a story of the institution of the, of the Lord's Supper. And it's important to remember 1 Corinthians 11 is Paul saying you must examine yourself and you must repent and it's to a church which had been playing fast and loose with sin in Corinth. And he even said when you meet together and you don't come in the right spirit, it does more harm than good. I find no greater indictment. It does more harm than good. But I hope we shan't come in that spirit. If we'd been using, which we're not, and I'm glad we're not, if we'd been using the old 1662, we would have moved in a few minutes with these words. I'm going to quote them and just say a word and then I'm finished. Catherine will take up the prayer and I know that she wants to lead in from penitence. These are the words, quaint but beautiful. Ye that do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbours 
and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways, draw near with faith. Take this holy sacrament to your comfort and make your humble confession meekly kneeling upon your knees. We shan't worry about the knees, but God doesn't care what our posture is, but he cares about our heart. I've got two things to say about it. One is, we take communion together, but we take it alone. You receive the bread and the wine, absolutely alone with the others. And is my heart right? Am I truly penitent? And my second comment, please don't hide behind the false piety that I've come across of people who say, you may have noticed, Vicar, I didn't come to communion today. You see, I don't feel right with my neighbour. I, I feel I shouldn't do it. And they expect me to say, well, that's lovely. How awful. If you're not right with your neighbour, the thing to do is to get right and come to communion, not stay away. That's getting you nowhere. But I want to say to all of us here this evening, godly sorrow, well, it doesn't rate high on the list of things that commend a church. In the world's eyes, in God's eyes, it is most important. God help us to come in a spirit of penitence. Let's be quiet and pray.